Heavenly Father, we ask that you speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, send your spirit to um, drive your word in deep, Lord, to set us free, to heal the brokenhearted, to restore, to correct, to encourage, to warn, Lord, and to uh, ultimately bring us to a a deeper knowledge of you, Lord, and to um, produce salvation in those who aren't saved today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Genesis 19 picks up. Uh, last week, we had three visitors come to Abraham, and we learned them to be God and two angels. You know, the scripture tells us, I believe it's in Hebrews, that, you know, uh, uh, to be very careful in offering hospitality, because we can often entertain angels unaware. And these angels and God came to investigate the sin of Sodom. And we know that the sin of Sodom was really the sin of pride, right? They had too much free time, too much food. They have no concern for the poor. But we're going to see how that manifests physically, right? This this town is going to be rampant in in a particular kind of sin, which is really more of a symptom of a greater issue, right? So Genesis 19 and verse 1 says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom, Where Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Now Lot, we're going back to the story of Lot here, and this is really the last we're ever going to hear of Lot in the first person. He's just going to be an example, excuse me, an example in in the remaining pages of Scripture. And we're going to see Lot as, remember, he, he decided to pitch his tents toward Sodom. And, and now he's in the city, he's in the city gates. And whenever you see in a Middle Eastern context the gates of the city, this is town hall. He's in a place of leadership now in Sodom. We're going to see he's an influential man, but he has no influence. Lot, I believe, is a picture of, of, of a saved believer who has no power in his life. Ask yourself going into today, does your life lack power? Do you you have life abundant as Christ said? Do you have that dunamos Holy Spirit power on your life? And the question is, are people getting saved by you? Are they being discipled by you? Are they just being affected positively by your walk with the Lord? Is your company doing better because you're there because you're the only person not stealing and milking off the time clock? Um, do people know you have a walk with the Lord? I mean, don't be the obnoxious Jesus freak. There's a time and a place for that. But to have a sincere, definite life marked with uh, intimacy with the Lord. So ask yourself, if you find there's a lack of power or influence in your life, where is your compromise? Lot is a compromised man. Verse 2 says, And he said, Hear now, O my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly so that they turned to him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So obviously Lot knew there was something wrong with the town that his visitors just couldn't go hang out in the open square. 
Now before they lay down, all the men in the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, and all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. Okay, here we go. All right, pass the bail plate. (laughs) Uh, This is the first biblical record of homosexuality. Okay? This is not just homosexuality in the sense of same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, things like that. This is militant, alphabet mafia-style sexuality. This is, this is political agenda stuff. This is beyond just the normal sin. This is a benchmark upon this culture. It's nothing new. This is the immoral majority because really, in all reality, only 3% of the world deals with the sin of sexual, or rather homosexuality, or identifies as a homosexual or a lesbian. 3% of the world, okay? See, as Bible believers, we need to understand, we are called to love the homosexual community, right? We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. They're image bearers. We don't hate them, but we are never, ever to affirm them. That would be dishonest. See, the Bible tells us homosexuality is a sin, and as the church has attempted to try to explain the source, whether it is through heredity or if it's through environmental circumstances, through abuse, either way, the Bible condemns same-sex attraction just as much as it condemns sex outside of marriage. It's the same sin in God's eyes. He considers it equal to the sin of murder or to the sin of stealing. Now, every sin has different consequence, and we're going to see where this, the consequence of this sin is going to lead. But we got to remember, the good news in this is homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, no drunkards, no revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And if you know anything about your study of of the town of Corinth, it was a pretty decadent city. It It was Vegas. It was what we'd call San Francisco. It was rampant with temple prostitute worship, both male and female. And Paul addresses it here. He says, such were some of you. So the early church was birthed out of sexual immorality. I mean, look at yours and I's life. Look at what God has saved you and I from. I mean, if I did all my sin before camera phones. It was a good time in the 90s. We don't have any record of it, praise the Lord. But the Lord dies for that. He calls it sin in order to be the Savior to it. If we call it a condition, a mental illness, then then there's no personal responsibility. But it's a sin that only the blood of Jesus Christ can, can correct. And it's condemned by the Bible. It says right here, if you're practicing this, if this is a regular hallmark of a person's life, they are not inheriting the kingdom of God, just as well as these other sins. But the idea, too, in our culture, just as in their culture, the militant homosexual agenda is to get to our children and young as possible. Because homosexuality cannot reproduce, can it? 
Physically, it can't. It's impossible. It defies nature. But because it cannot reproduce, it can only recruit, right? Someone has to be turned into this. Someone has to be turned out into it. It has to be brought upon somebody. As you see in our media, there's this brainwashing of the young people into what? Essentially trusting their feelings, right? Fact, reason, and logic have left our discussion in America years ago. Everything now is feeling-oriented, right? Even within the body of Christ, we're trying to appeal to people based on their feelings rather than the truth of the matter that we're all sinners and we are going to be condemned to hell if we don't receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's a matter of intellect. But as we appeal to people's hearts and try to appeal to their feelings, we're going to lose our message See, the world likes to convince impressionable people that you were born with the right mind, but the incorrect body, right? As, the, as they're now turning into, they're, they're, they're saying that gender dysphoria is a mental illness only curable by what? Mutilation? We got to cut your body up now to fix this? Let's cut off the area of your body you reproduce with? Isn't there an agenda there? It's to sterilize the population, But the Bible tells us you have a corrupt mind when you're born, right? You have a reprobate mind. You have a mind hostile to God, and God has born you with the right tools for the right job. How do you know you're a boy or a girl? Look down. Solved, you know? Feelings over facts is the message of our culture. So ask yourself this question. Does God make mistakes? Well, we'll talk to him about the platypus someday. That's a different story. keep going. You know, part of this, when you, when you have a, try to have a discussion, this always becomes an emotional discussion, a hostile discussion. The idea here is, if anyone thinks they were born a homosexual, they were born that way, or they, they were born with some kind of predisposed sin, I mean, Murderers are born that way, right? Thieves are born that way. I mean, anyone here, we all have a flavor of sin we were born with, right? No one taught your kids how to lie. They figured it out, right? I mean, we all have a, we're all bent towards sin. We have what's called a fallen nature. So if anyone thinks they're born that way, then that's why Jesus says you need to what? You need to be born again. You know, when the Holy Spirit comes into you, he corrects all that. He corrects the effects of the fall, Right? You know, statistically speaking, let's just look at just the physical uh, consequence of this kind of lifestyle. You know, they, they call it the gay lifestyle, and gay doesn't mean happy. I mean, if you look at just statistics, you can look all this up on, in secular news, you can catch, catch this in medical journals. The average gay man dies at 39 from AIDS. They die at 49 of all other causes, and only 1% of all gay men make it to 65. Gay men have three times the average drug and alcohol problems than the national average. They have 14 times the national average of syphilis, 23 times of of, uh, uh, STDs, and they have 1,000 times the national average of AIDS. And in San Francisco alone, the average male murder rate is 50 times that of the national average. 
So just looking at quantifiable data tells us there's something wrong and it brings other consequence. And that was rampant in this culture. These men were hungry, they were vile, they had an unholy passion, and they came looking for the men. There was something comely about these men. They were angels. There was something attractive. Verse 6 said, So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind them, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. Hold on there, bucko. Calls them brethren. He's a believer in in the the true and the living God. He is to have no fellowship with unrighteousness, right? He's placed himself where he doesn't belong, and he's suffering from self-deception. The Bible says friendship with the the world is enmity with God, and, and so he has befriended this community because it's the source of his income. He decided to move here because it was financially prosperous and to his advantage. Notice verse 8. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. See, the depravity of Lot's thinking is to offer up his daughters to this sex-crazed crowd as a substitute. You know, the most dangerous person is always a backslidden Christian. See, Lot has no fear of God and has no moral compass. He is compromised, and this is affecting his family. How would you feel if you were his daughters? Dad, you want to do what? He has no regard for his own children in his house. Right? He's looking to be validated by the immoral world around him. Compromised Christians will always say dumb things. Sometimes you'll get the worst advice from other Christians. Have you noticed that? Just follow your heart. No, your, your heart's wicked and deceitful. God won't give you more than you can handle. Yeah, he does all the time. You know, there's just a lot of dumb things Christians say, and they do it to be culturally relevant. You know, this is, I, I don't like Christian books. I mean, I do. I have plenty of decent dead authors who finished well and sat under their wisdom. But there was a time in the 90s and 2000s, the, 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 the source of heresy in the church was at Christian bookstores. There's just so much bad material written in the name of the body of Christ. And people buy it because they've lost respect for the word of God or they're trying to rectify the world with God. They're trying to have the best of both worlds. And all they need is one dumb Christian who's in compromise to write a book and everyone jumps on it. Don't even get me started. Verse 9, and they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man lot and came near to break down the door. It's the same thing you hear today, right? Whenever you try to make a moral stand or you try to call sin, sin, what does the world tell you? Thou shalt not judge. Did Jesus really tell us not to judge? No. Remember, he says, when you judge, use a a righteous judgment. For whatever standard you judge, you will be judged by your same standard. And then he goes on to make seven judgments against the Pharisees. Okay? You know, I don't like to use the word judge. I like to use the word diagnose. You know, when you go to the doctor, he makes a judgment on your life. Right? He tells you, you're doing something harmful to your body. You need to stop doing that to be healthy. We don't ever criticize that. 
Or now they just give you a different med. You know, they never tell you really what's wrong. But it's the same thing. We, we, need to, we need to have a message. We have to declare there is a right and a wrong. There is a sin. There is, there is things that are going to produce negative consequence. But because he's compromised, he has no voice. Right? He's been living amongst them, and now he's decided to stand up, and they're just scoffing at him. And they're going to press hard into him. He has no influence in his community whatsoever. And see, you don't win the world to Christ by acting like the world. The world notices true holiness, not false self-righteous holiness. See, they're pressing in. And you know the world will push back and persecute you when you try to stand for righteousness' sake. It's a promise of Jesus. If you live a godly, righteous life, you will be persecuted. Lot is going to find out that God does not compromise his word. But notice the world does never, the world never compromises either. The world's never going to let up. You know, look at all the money that they lost in that Bud Light campaign. They knew they were going to do that. But it, to, to the agenda, to the satanic, demonic agenda, it's money well spent. Because they're just storming the beach. That was the tip of the spear, right? That's why Disney has interjected so much of that lifestyle into their current movies. It adds nothing to the narrative. It just erodes children's sense of right and wrong. And they're willing to pay the price. They're willing to, to lose millions on these movies, knowing that eventually they keep it up. They're using their shrewdness, just like the church is supposed to use our money and our shrewdness to reach people with righteousness, the world's figured that out too, where it's worth it to them to lose the money. You know, you've heard it said, and I've even said it, you cannot legislate morality. Now, and I mean that in the sense laws cannot change a person's heart. How many laws are on the books? How many people are in prison? doesn't stop people from breaking the law. But law is designed to restrain evil, right? We have to decide each presidential election which laws that president is going to enforce. The real threat in our country is the Supreme Court. They write the laws. And it's the president and the local administrations deciding which of those laws to enforce. But that's the reality is we need to enforce law and morality for the sake of the innocent, to protect people. And so the question is, is whether or not should we legislate morality? Whose morality should we legislate? Who wants Sharia law? Right? You ever read the Quran? Hey, that's going on down in Dearbornistan. Right? It's going on in Oklahoma. But everyone's afraid of Islam, so they leave it alone. Ask anyone who lives in Islam if they like Sharia law, especially the women. You know, did you guys, you guys been to some of the Muslim communities in the Middle East? They're not happy people. Bitter. Yeah, bitter. You hear those sayings, keep your laws off of my body. But you know, every law ever written is designed to limit your body and where it can go. Your seatbelt law is designed to keep your body in the car in the event of an accident, right? The crosswalk limits your body from going into traffic. I mean, every law is limiting where your body can go. As salt and light, we are to be involved in the discussion of what laws are being made and enforced in our communities, in our schools, right, our boardrooms. 
But oftentimes Christians are tired of the fight, so they withdraw, and then that allows the perverts and the predators to come in and change the laws because we just don't want to deal with that aggressive crowd. You know, our Constitution was heavily influenced by the book of Deuteronomy. Our founding fathers were believers, or at least grounded in Scripture. You know, the majority of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were ordained ministers. But look at how each one of those men died. They were harassed, their farms were burned, their families were killed. King George never let up on those guys. England made them pay, but they were willing to pay the price. But there is something in our Constitution that says that we hold these truths to be self-evident. Nowadays, it's subjective morality, right? Well, what is is, right? What, is, what does that exactly mean? Your reality, my reality, they can coexist. Well, no, they can't. Verse 10, but the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whoever you have in the city, take them out of this place. Christian, ask yourself this question. Who is in your sphere of influence? Your coworkers, your neighbor, your classmates, your family. Take inventory. Who can hear your message? You know, the only thing you and I can bring to heaven is what? Our friends and our family. Verse 13, for we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-law who married his daughters, or sons-in-law, who married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. Again, Lot has no message. His compromised life invalidated his message. His sons-in-law won't even listen to him. He needed to preach it to himself first. See, he wasn't sitting under his own wisdom. You know, in some degree, I think a lot of us will experience this as, as you come to faith and as you start to strengthen your faith, as you start to grow in the word. Who's the last to listen to you? the people in your own family, the people that grew up with you, the people that know you, right? Your reputation will always precede you. What did Jesus say? A prophet is without honor in his own hometown. You know, I used to go to preach the jail in St. Paul, and I knew the inmates, and I knew the guards, and they all laughed at me because we were all doing stupid stuff together in high school, you know, and now I'm the guy who's the good guy, and they're like, really? Even at my, my wedding, people were like, oh, this is Ben's phase. Okay. But Lot has no message. Obviously, they didn't see it in his life, so they weren't even inclined to looking at him. Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, chapter 4, 16, and 1 Timothy. Paul writes to him, he says, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. Continue in them, for in doing so you will save both yourself and those who hear you. You know, we need to sit under our own wisdom, as I've been saying. You have to preach to yourself first. You have to show the world what you believe by the way you conduct your life. 
There are men and women who have such godly character that when they speak, people listen. Leadership is always observable. And we need to take care of our character and God will take care of our reputation. I love going to pastor's conferences. You just know who's in the game. You, you know who, who's just a solid, godly person that you just want to sit. And I do. I find my heroes of the faith practically to go sit and just listen to what they talk about at lunch. Right? You just know when somebody's really just in pocket with the Lord. And, and wouldn't that be nice if people said that about us? You don't have to convince anybody you're, you're godly. People will know. I like Peter. What betrayed Peter at the crucifixion of Christ? Remember, he denied Jesus. And that little servant girl came up to him and said, you're a Galilean. I could tell by your accent. Shouldn't that be said of us? Like people will catch us slip our Christianese or just talk about, we just have a different way of conducting our speech. You know, when you talk to God, it's going to show up in your conversation with other people. And you know, like when you're at work, people stop swearing around you or they hide their cigarettes around you. You know, that's when the Lord's really working in your life and the Holy Spirit's bearing witness to that. Verse 15, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, in the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Lot lingered. You know, part of our doctrine in our church is we we believe in a premillennial rapture. We, we teach the rapture. We believe it. And it's lost its popularity in our culture. That, that doctrine became popular again in the 60s to a group of hippies who had nothing to lose. But all those hippies grew up and became stockbrokers and bankers. And now they have two and a half car garages and too much to lose. And so people have gotten away from the doctrine of the rapture because they have too much stuff. The message of the church has convinced us to be better earth dwellers. Have a better 401k. How's your Dave Ramsey retirement fund? How is your, your college fund for your children? You know, what are you going to do as you linger on this earth to your 80s? That's not the gospel, right? That's the cares of the world. And Christ calls the cares of the world thorns. They just keep you anchored here. And you don't want to lose your stuff, right? We have a fear of loss. He had a fear of loss but he's going to create the very thing he wished to have ever avoided in the first place. He's going to lose everything he's ever attained. He's going to lose his wife. And look what happens with his daughters as we keep going. He chose money over a life of faith. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind, look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me, and I die. See now, the city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. 
And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, and that I will not overthrow this city of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Go online and look up the archaeological evidence of this catastrophe. This was a giant mirror when God was done. It was glass, right? And it's evident. You can dig around there. But notice he's weary. He can't make it to where God tells him to be. He compromises. He goes to this neighboring town. And, and sometimes, Christian, we live our life so close to the edge of the world. And that prevents God. God saying, look, I can't do anything until you're out of here. How, how far close do you want to live to the Grand Canyon? Right? You know, I live in Michigan because if I ever go in the lake, I'll never be eaten by a shark so far. Right? We may have, isn't there rumors? But, I mean, there's just certain things we're not going to experience up here. No sandstorms. I've lived in Arizona. There's no sandstorms up here. I mean, so how close to the edge do you want to be? God is going to judge. Verse 25, so he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Men, what's our most important relationship? Our dog. Man's best friend, right? Women have diamonds, we have dogs. It's like Hunter has two. <laughs> no, his relationship with his wife. He failed to influence his wife for righteousness sake. Do you think Lot's wife knew about the true and living God? Sure. Do you think she knew all the stories from Abraham? Absolutely. I don't think she ever disbelieved in God. But maybe she was just a cultural Christian. Maybe she just came to church and lived like the world the rest of the week. You know, her behavior, her heart betrays her in this story because her heart was in Sodom. She looked back longingly. She felt she had more to lose than what she was about to gain. I find that in witnessing when people, people come to me and I share the Lord with them and the first thing they say is, do I have to stop having sex outside of marriage? Do I have to stop gambling? Do I have to stop smoking marijuana? Do I have to stop drinking alcohol? You know what I find? The issue is the idol. The first thing they go to, that's their God. She was looking back longingly. She loved the world more than Jesus. She did not have saving faith, in my opinion. Challenge me on it. But even Jesus uses her as an object lesson in Luke 17. Luke 17, 28 through 33 for you note takers. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And that day, he who is on the housetop and all his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. 
And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. He doesn't even give her a name. Lot's wife. She is an object lesson for us to remember, to take inventory. Where is your heart? You know, this caught everyone by surprise. There was no indicator. There was no harbinger. There was no, no indicators to the town of Sodom. They were living in prosperity. They were living in complacency. They were living in probably a, a peaceful-esque environment. Right? They ate. They drank. Business as usual. Jesus says, that's the way it's going to be when I come back. He'll even go on to say, will I even find faith when I return? Verse 33 here is the key. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. That's one of those, hmm, what does that mean? Self-preservation is your enemy to your faith walk. Right? We're so busy harvesting, planting, reaping, sowing, figuratively speaking, working, shopping, just trying to stay alive, it doesn't factor in the importance or the value of having the Holy Spirit-led life that God desires of us. Comfort is our enemy. All right? Remember, they had an abundance of food, a disregard for the poor, too much free time. You know, salvation, rather, overall, having a walk with the Lord is like being on an airplane having to wear your seatbelt with your parachute on. It's very uncomfortable, isn't it? You know, you're on a bumpy flight, you got this parachute, it's chafing you, the seat's tight, the belt's tight. But the one thing you're guaranteed in an airplane flight is what? A landing, you know. And so often the very thing that God gives us to save it, it's uncomfortable, it's inconvenient, it's bothersome, it's cumbersome. And you realize as a Christian, you can't go certain places, you can't do certain things, you can't enjoy and laugh at and do and watch and do the things that the world does because it agitates the Holy Spirit in you. You know, my, my watching TV selection has gotten so narrow these days. There's not very much out there. You're, you ever just watch a show and your spirit's just grieved? You're like, ah, oh, I don't commit adultery or rape or murder, but I watch Law & Order. Right? I love that show, but then it grates you because of all the sin in it. It just wears on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit just is just like, we need a spiritual bath, bro. Come on, clean yourself up. You know, it's, it's just limited to like puppy videos and... You know, you can't even enjoy what's supposed to be harmless entertainment. There's just so much agenda stuff. But, you know, turning the TV off or turning the Internet off these days is not the solution to the Christian. Yeah, we need to do that. But you got to remember, we live in a hostile world that doesn't turn the Internet off or doesn't turn the TV off. You and I are raising our families in a world that idolizes sin, Right? I watched an interview, a woman who studies uh, serial killers. You know what the number one reason they become serial killers? They're mimicking movies. So don't tell me that doesn't have an effect, right? We play video games called Grand Theft Auto. Why? Or I've watched movies, and before the movie, the movie's about stealing, 
And before that, it says there's a, there's a federal penalty for anyone who bootlegs and steals movies. And here I'm about to watch a movie on stealing. Isn't that ironic? The world knows it's wrong. They just don't want you to steal their movie. But we're going to make you a movie about stealing so you don't steal. That's, that's the contradiction of the world. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. I like Abraham. He's a disciplined man. He's a devoted man. He has a meeting place with the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw and behold the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. How do you think his heart felt? Are we grieved at our lost and dying world around us? I mean, we don't delight in the death of the wicked because God doesn't. But judgment's now upon the earth. I mean, some of us were there at 9-11. I was there, but I wasn't there. I wasn't right with God, and I blew it off. I woke up that day. My best friend called me up. I'm hungover, partied all night. Dude, we're being attacked. I'm like, shut up. And I watched it go down on TV. I just went to work. Business is normal. How did America react? They put God Bless America stickers on everything, lasted about six months. Remember that? Everyone had a little sticker on their car. But the stimulation didn't match the reaction God desired. It was the revival that never happened. God allowed that, right? God did something there, and it didn't produce what he intended. Now, God did work through it, and God did have, have a say in it, but in my own personal life, I blew it off. Abraham's watching you know, First Thessalonians, Paul writes to this church, he says, but it's in chapter 5, it says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that the day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness, therefore let us not sleep as others do. But let us watch and be sober, for these who drink sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet of the hope of salvation, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are also doing. <coughs> Christian, are you aware of the signs of the times? Because I would say we're in the times of the signs. I'm excited. I read the paper with enthusiasm. You know, I grew up in a movement that acknowledges a third of the Bible is Bible prophecy. 50% of that has already come true, and so we need to be living a life in expectation of the soon and imminent return of Jesus. It purifies you, right? It gets you busy about your father's business. I mean, I knew this in the world. We'd have house parties. Not at my house, at my friend's parents' house. Oh, we'll be back Sunday at 5. You know what that means. Got to make sure the, the vomit stains are scrubbed out of the upholstery by 4.30, right? Get all the beer cans, you know. Oh, we had one on lockdown. We did such a good job. 
but we didn't pay off the older sister who kept the flyer that I handed out all through town. I mean, we had a rager. And because we didn't pay her off, guess what she gave to mom and dad? Busted. It wasn't my mom and dad, so I just wasn't invited over anymore. But I mean, we know while the mouse away, or while the, excuse me, while the cat's away, the mice will play. But to us, we need to be concerned about the times and the seasons. We just need to be ready. But there's a comfort knowing Christ is coming back for his church before a time of judgment, right? That's our blessed hope. Verse 29, And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow which he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Christian, God hears your prayer. Do you believe prayer works? Who are you praying for? I, I uh, sent a message to an old high school friend diagnosed with terminal cancer. He's a year older than me, 50, 51 years old. Just checking in on him. We, we don't talk on a regular basis. We're just best friends on Facebook like the rest of the 400 and some odd people I don't talk to. They just laugh at my food jokes. Just reaching out to him, just putting it on deposit, saying, hey, if you need to talk, you know, reach out to me. I could just tell by our conversation, you know, there's got to be some, some more bonding that'll go through there. But I just want to let him know I'm praying for him. And, you know, it's, it's got to be scary when you're diagnosed with something as terminal as cancer at, at a young age with a daughter and family at home. You know, it's like I, I could have easily just vomited all over him with all my words of wisdom. But, you know, if his heart's not ready to receive it, it'll just fall to the side. You know, I want to be very timely in that. And. You know, oftentimes we've just got to prepare the person we want to reach out with prayer. You know, and you watch the Lord just line up the shot for you. You know, you never know, you know, whether you're out help shoveling or helping start their car or just hanging out in the yard. I mean, God has given me some very natural opportunity to witness to people. But who are you praying for? You know, can you, can you sleep at night knowing your neighbors are dying and going to hell? Can you sleep at night knowing... You have family members that haven't received the Lord. Have you, uh, even in your own immediate family, you know, where are your kids at? Where are your spouses at? You know, we, we have to kind of check and, and intercede on behalf of them because that's the real issue. It's God's doing the work, and we participate on our knees. Some of us are a product of praying grandparents and mothers, and, you know, God is listening. He's waiting for that heart of intercession But God destroyed the cities of the plain. You know, God cares about our behavior. Our thought life is very hard to control, right? You ever just have the strangest thoughts? Like, you ever try to diet and all of a sudden you crave Hardee's? I haven't eaten Hardee's in 20 years, but I'll start to diet. And I'm like, oh, why did I think of Hardee's? I, I think of Ghostbusters. Whatever you think of will be your destruction. What did he think of? The Stay Puff Marshmallow Man? And it's like, it's like in worship. Have you been worshiping and then just some of the strangest thoughts fly into your head? Bad thoughts usually. Something vulgar comes in. And God won't judge you for your thought life. Okay, We're all wicked. We're all deceitful. We all have a reprobate mind. He does judge on behavior. He cares about 
your behavior. And the reason God cares about that, right? He, he, the, the scripture is real clear. How shall we live? You read Ephesians. You have doctrine, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then chapter 4 gets into. Now this is how you live it out. This is God's will for your life, that you abstain from sexual immorality. I mean, God is very clear about certain sins. You do not, you do not even hang around a Christian who's sexually immoral, who's unruly, or who's a drunkard. The Bible says avoid that believer. Mark them and avoid them, because that behavior affects other people. And the reason God judges, God judges to keep people in the faith. He doesn't do it to keep people out. He's not capricious. He's not fickle. He's not, he's not trying to withhold anybody from the gates of heaven, but he's making it real clear to the faithful that he's a just God. And certain sins are not tolerable in my house. And it's just like in your house. Sometimes you have to discipline that one kid for the sake of the other two, right? Sometimes I have to correct one just to make sure the other one's paying attention. Because I know the other one isn't going to get the message right away, but the one that's watching, oh boy, they're going to tighten up, right? Anyone here the oldest? Oh man, you got away with murder in some degrees, but mom also came down hard on you the worst. And then some of you guys are the baby, right, Preston? The baby. You can do no wrong. Even when you're doing wrong, you can do no wrong because you're just so cute, right? Yeah. <laughs> Second Peter 2.6 And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Everyone knows the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Nobody's a stranger. In fact, we, we named a particular aberrant sexual behavior based on Sodom and Gomorrah. Everyone knows it. Jude 1.7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh and set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So what are the steps to national destruction? See, militant homosexuality is just the benchmark that says destruction is the next step. History testifies to this as well as the scriptures do. Look at Rome, right? Romans, Paul, Paul writes to the Romans, the Christians in Rome, he gives them the path to destruction. Verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Truth is always suppressed, step one. Look at America. When did truth start to get suppressed? Theory of evolution. It was introduced to how we made law, right? We started to change the law. The Democratic Party will tell you that the Constitution is a living document, which needs to evolve as man evolves. Nuh-uh. Law is law. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. But it comes down, they'll say things like, no gods and no kings. They eliminate God and make man the highest moral standard in man's life. In the 60s, they called it freedom, right? But look at that generation. The sexual generation, the sexual revolution just created bondage to drugs and alcohol and sexual sin. 
But it comes down to, I know what I'm doing is wrong, so I will remove God so that he can't tell me what to do. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So step two says they use their imaginations. They like to create God in their own image. That's what, the, that's what the Greeks did, right? When you look at Greek mythology, they just worshipped the sinful behavior of men around them. Their gods were very, very fickle and capricious. As they put man at the top of moral authority, it really diminishes their character. You diminish your humanity and debase yourself when you live for pleasure. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their heart, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the, or the, the creature rather than the creator, who is <coughs> blessed forever. Amen. So the next step is God just gives them some slack. He gives them what they want. He turns them over to it. Rejection of God will lead to what the world calls a sexual revolution. Look at what happened in the 60s. They got rid of prayer. Look at how, what occurred in the 60s. The, the removal of prayer, the invention of the birth control pill, um, really good music showed up, and drugs and immorality were rampant after that. They were living for pleasure. And so as sexual immorality goes rampant, it will lead to more deviant, the example being homosexuality, then it will lead to bestiality, then it will lead to polygamy, then it will lead, ultimately, I believe in our country, the whole agenda now is to lead to pedophilia being legal, right? That's the whole agenda. It's the media is silent about pedophilia, right? And, you know, when they made same-sex marriage legal, it was just step one to erode all boundaries regarding marriage. See, the Supreme Court can't legislate that. It's not their right. They cross their boundaries. See, God designed marriage, and then the civil, the civil court said, well, no, now we can say this, but it's not going to ever end there because now you're seeing people lined up to have two or three or four people in one marriage. That's not marriage. That's an orgy. There's the North American Man-Boy Lover Association who's been trying to marry older men with younger boys under age, under 12, under 13, 9 years old. They want to make that legal. You can't, you can't stop what has just been eroded. They move the boundary stone and they're going to keep moving it. I mean, that's why, if you think about it, why do they have open borders so they can sex traffic children? What's going on in the Middle East? Sex traffic children. Right? It's, if you look behind the facade of what the media is trying to distract you from, how come they haven't released the Epstein list? Because too many important people are on that list. Right? The people who are writing our laws are on that list. 
they don't want to give up the con. That's the number one rule of being a criminal is never give up the con. Hollywood, look at all the kids who've survived Hollywood saying this is a breeding ground for pedophilia. Parents sold their kids for fame and financial gain to pedophiles. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, all the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So the final step is God gives them to a debased mind. There's no moral order whatsoever, and you'll start seeing people call right wrong and wrong right. You can't rationalize with somebody with a debased mind, and it's a judgment of God where he says, if you can't figure out basic human physical function, you've lost your mind. You know, there's people, when you read the scriptures, oftentimes Men and women have walked away from Christ, and God has not left their, their mind intact. You can't rationalize rejecting Jesus Christ and then continue to live a happy, normal lifestyle. He'll take your mind. Look at King Nebuchadnezzar. He rejected the true and living God, and what happened? He's eaten grass seven years. He lost his mind. You can't look at Christ and be indifferent. Think of the times in your own life you've walked away from the gospel. You've walked away from what you knew about God. And did your life get better? I look at my life. I walked away from Jesus at 20, and boy, all moral boundaries were completely erased in my life. You know, And I walked away from the Lord because I was involved with a woman that the Lord said, I don't want you involved with her. That's wrong. And I said, but she's pretty, Lord. And he says, all right, click, turn the radio off, and... Every moral boundary that I've created, as immoral as it was, by seven years I was completely burned out. Drugs, alcohol, sexual sin, addiction. Because my mind, I walked away from the truth, right? What what did Pilate say to Jesus? What is truth? (laughs) He's got a lot of time to think about that statement. The world has no idea what is true. God gives us a debate. And I think that's what we're seeing in our country. This is judgment. We're seeing people under judgment. It's the debased mind that he promised. Let's wrap it up. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, (coughs) deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things disobedient to parents be careful undiscerning untrustworthy unloving unforgiving unmerciful who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same but also approve of those who practice them the final step to destruction again is man's thought life becomes futile and God has to judge it's past the point of no return. (coughs) Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar, and he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. 
Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us in the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and this younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. We're going to see Israel will be plagued with conflicts from both the Moabites and the Ammonites. And the Moabites are such a wicked people, they were forbidden to assimilate into the nation of Israel for at least 10 generations. But there's some questions we got to ask. Number one, where did they obtain wine? Like, if you had to run and flee in a refugee situation, what would you grab? You know, we got to bring the TV. This chair. Remember Steve Martin, the jerk, us old timers, remember? All I need is this lamp. I feel like that some days, yeah. Okay, how come Lot didn't stop these two? Right? Hey, Dad, let's get drunk. Sure. Good idea. How drunk was Lot to consent to this? Okay, I've played the I was so drunk last night, I don't remember card, but I know I remember every vivid detail. That's why I tell people I don't want to remember it, right? Come on. Amen. But ultimately, Lot has lost his influence on his daughter's we got to recall, Christian, our children's nature is always to favor our carnality. They'll typically even favor the more carnal parent in the, in the family. And Lot's reaping what he has sown. And so as we see, this is the last mention of Lot. We have no more record. But this isn't the last say in his life. You know who gets the last say in his life? Jesus Christ does. Because the Bible tells us where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Because we're going to read about a particular woman, a Moabitess, Ruth. In fact, she has her own book. Baby Ruth, right? It's the book of Ruth. She marries a guy named Boaz. King David will descend from them. And Christ himself will descend from David. And so we're going to see God's grace and mercy toward the Moabites and the Ammonites, right, will produce the Savior of the world. That Savior will identify with Ruth and the Moabites in his genealogy recorded in Matthew. See, God's not going to let man have the final say, right? Even in your own life, you know, as you're yielding your life to God, he's not going to let your sin be your benchmark. He is going to override that if you let him. He's, he's provided a Savior, whether or not you personally accept that, that's between you and him. But even in the midst of their complete disregard for things right and wrong, God's sovereignty took control of the situation and going, I still have a plan you can't override. What Satan has meant for evil, I'll, I'll use for good. There's always hope, Christian. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord.
that I didn't go over one hour solid. I still have 20 seconds. Bless your word today. Let it go out. Bring healing to many in Jesus' name. Amen.